a high-speed train left Belgium heading to Paris. When that train crossed the French border, a man by the name of Ayub Al-Khazani, 25-year-old Moroccan uh, man, he came out of the, the bathroom with 270 rounds of ammunition and an assault rifle. And he began to move through the train, terrorizing the people on that train. He threw one to the ground and shot another. And as he moved into the compartment containing three young American men, he had no idea what was about to happen. His, uh, his, his, his gun jammed, and at that moment that his gun jammed, Scarlatos, one of the young Americans, every one of these three guys immediately rushed Kazani and took him down. Once they brought him down, Kazani pulled out a knife and began to slash at, uh, at Stone. And in spite of the fact that, that Spencer Stone was slashed and injured, he started taking care of the people around him. There was one man who was, who was badly cut up. His blood was just squirting out of him. Stone, in spite of his own injury, stuck his, his hand in, into the wound and stopped the bleeding. And some of you may have remember, you may remember that happening, I don't know, but it, it so impressed Clint Eastwood that Clint Eastwood decided that he was going to make a movie out of it. And it's called The 1517 to Paris. Some of you may or may not have heard of this, but it is a, it is a major motion picture. It's out right now. When Clint Eastwood began to prepare to make this movie, he tried to find some actors that could actually play the role of Spencer Stone, Anthony Sadler, and Alex Scarlatos. The problem was he couldn't find anybody that was convincing enough in the role. Now, if you've already seen this movie, you may have thought, well, it's not, it's not, a, it's not the best movie that, that Clint Eastwood has made. Uh, in fact, Clint Eastwood made some very bold moves here. Uh, the first bold move is that he ended up casting these three fellows in the, in the role that they play in the movie. Uh, it's actually, I don't think it's ever been done before. But he wanted somebody authentic in that role. He didn't want it to be uh, plastic or artificial. It couldn't get more raw, more real than the actual three heroes playing the role. But there's another bold thing that Clint Eastwood did. Clint Eastwood actually explored the lives of these guys leading up to that fateful day on August 21st, 2015. He showed these guys for who they really were. And who they are are people or men of faith. They attended a Christian school, the Freedom Christian School in California. Uh, one of the young men, uh, Sadler, his father was a, a, was a preacher. And it shows what these guys learned from the preaching of Sadler's dad. It's all there in the movie. Now, that's, that's pretty bold moves from Hollywood to actually... First of all, talk about something heroic like that, but then to say that the men who are the heroes were heroes because of their faith. Very interesting. These fellows talk about their experience leading up to this day. Scarlatos put it like this. It was as if 
We were training our whole lives for that moment and didn't know it. And so when you look at the movie, I haven't seen it myself yet, but I've I've been hearing reports about it. The 1517 to Paris is really about three young men of faith whose faith allowed them to see the opportunity to make a difference. Some of you will remember a series that we did not that long ago on the, the book of Esther. Sort of borrow a line from the book of Esther. These men, they believe this, these men were in a place for such a time as this. They were in the place God wanted them to be. And in Stone's words, they were owning the life that they had been given by God. Their faith determined their actions. While others were running to hide, were trying to get out of the compartment, were trying to do everything to be invisible, these men recognized that it was their responsibility to step in and do what they could to save the lives of over 500 people on that train. It truly was an act of heroism. But as these men put it, God was was the wind in their sails. It was God that was moving them to do the work that they did that day. Absolutely amazing, absolutely thrilling. These last few weeks have been talking about what it means to be fully alive. These men talk about feeling fully alive in that moment when they moved ahead and put an end to the intentions of that terrorist. To be fully alive, we said, is to hear the word of God. When we hear the word of God, we discover life. We discover what eternal life is all about. We discover what abundant life is all about. Jesus Christ teaches us in his word how to have eternal life. In fact, in Romans, Paul says, how can people ever put their faith in God? How can they ever be saved unless they hear? And so we understand that in order for us to truly live, in order for us to know the power and the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives, we need to have our spirits informed and taught by the Word of God. This is why we've invited everybody across church to try to read through the Bible in 2018. Because we know that it will revolutionize your life. I've had so many people tell me, man, I've never read this much in the Bible. And I'm telling you, Pastor Allen, it's just so unbelievable. I had no idea what was in there. It's absolutely thrilling. And that's from people who've been Christians for many, many years. So we want everybody to start reading the scripture, not just as a history book, not just as a book full of great stories. And I'm telling you, lots of history there, lots of great stories. But to read the Bible as a book that allows us, that enables us to hear the voice of God. And I want you to know that once you begin this journey of faith where you get to know who God is and and you start opening yourself up to the work of the Spirit in your life, then you're going to discover that God wants to speak to you and he will speak to you every single day. He's going to teach you what it means to truly love. Now, we could sum up the whole Bible in two verses, and you've heard me say this many times, love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and then love your neighbor as yourself. We could sum the Bible up with those two verses. Now, if God thought that that was adequate, that's all we would have got. There's two verses. Here, here's two verses. Memorize this, live by it. But God gives us a whole big book called the Bible. And the Bible, what the Bible does, the Bible helps us understand what it means to love God. What does that look like? What are some examples? And of course, there's multiple examples in Scripture of how to truly love God with all our heart, mind, soul, and strength. But even more than that, the Bible is full of instructions and guidance on how to love others as we love ourselves. 
So it's not enough just to say Christianity is about love because yes, it is about love, but it's living out that love. So last week we talked about faith and faith is believing God and doing what he says. We understand that. Today, I want to talk about what it is that we do as Christians. What is it that God wants us to do? I'm going to show you a passage of scripture here in James. Uh, James is one of my favorite books in the Bible. Very practical. I love practical books. Uh, Here's what James says in 2.14. What good is it, dear brothers and sisters, if you say you have faith, but don't show it by your actions? Can that kind of faith save anyone? If you say you have faith, but don't show it by your actions, what good is that? James declares that just saying I'm a Christian is not enough. It's not enough to say I believe in God. In fact, James says even the devil and the demons believe in God and they tremble. You hear a lot of people say I believe in God, but I'm going to tell you something right now. That really doesn't mean anything. If you believe in God, That's great. That's a good starting point. But the next step, the evidence that you believe in God is that you do what he says. Now, why is it that we do what God says? Well, because very clearly, we respect God. We honor him. We fear him. We fear him in, 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 uh, not as as I'm terrified of him, but we fear him in, in that we respect him. And we know that he's got the final word and we need to do whatever he says. We need to obey him. So James says, if you actually don't live out what you say you believe, then you don't really have anything. Your your faith, your so-called faith is dead. So James tells us then that faith is not just shaping how we live, uh, uh, or tells us that our faith is not just shaping how how we live, but it, it, it actually causes us to live it out, to do what God says. That faith in God is the beginning of salvation, but the evidence that you're saved is that you actually do what God is saying. Now, I want to read to you a passage of scripture from Matthew chapter 7. And uh, Jesus is showing us what it actually means to be a Christian, what it means to be a true person of faith. He says in Matthew 7, verse 20, yes, just as you can identify a tree by its fruit, so you can identify people by their actions. Did you get that? We know what a person is by their actions, by the way they talk, by the things that they do, by the way they invest their money, by the way that they uh, relate to their, their spouse, their children, so on and so forth. I know many people who maybe have grown up in a Christian home and they got to a certain age and they said, you know what? Based on the way my parents lived, I want no part of this. And they just walk away from it all. Now, that's not always the case. I mean, we think of Judas, who walked with Jesus for three years, and he turned his back on Jesus. But I'm going to tell you, sometimes sometimes kids grow up in a home where the, the way the parents have lived is not consistent with what the parents confess. I wonder how many, how many people at your work would know that you are a true follower of Jesus Christ based on the way that you speak and the way that you act. Jesus says that the evidence of who we are is in our actions. And then he goes on to say this in verse 23 or 21. Not everyone who calls out to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. 
Only those who actually do the will of my Father in heaven will enter. Now, that is quite a shocking statement because Jesus is making it clear that it's not just enough to say, I'm a Christian. It's not just enough to say, uh, I belong to God or I go to church. Jesus is saying, not everybody, not everybody who says, Lord, 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 I'm, I belong to you, is in fact a Christian. Listen to this. This is even more shocking. Jesus says, on judgment day, many will say to me, Lord, we prophesied in your name and cast out demons in your name and performed many miracles in your name. But I will reply, I never knew you. Get away from me, you who break God's laws. Now, man, if you're, if you're casting out devils and you're doing miracles in Jesus' name, if that doesn't get you into heaven, what will? Well, Jesus tells us. You have to do the will of the Father. You have to be in step with what the Spirit of God is telling you to do. For so many of us, we think that we can do whatever we want. We think that we can live any way we want. As long as we go to church once in a while, as long as we threw a few bucks in the offering plate, that's good enough. Jesus says no. Jesus says if you're going to be a true Christian, if you're going to be one of those people that makes it into heaven, then you are going to have to learn what it means to do the will of the Father. Only those who actually do the will of my Father in heaven will enter. Now, I, I mean, I, I don't want to throw a heavy on anybody today, but I, my job as pastor and preacher is to teach you, to help you understand what it means to actually be a Christian. It's more than just giving assent to the gospel and saying the Bible is true, it's good, I believe in God. There's much more to it than that. Jesus is making it clear that our actions really are critical when we're going to talk about faith. And if you're going to be truly and fully alive, if you're going to experience that abundant life that Jesus is talking about, if you're going to enjoy and know eternal life, then you're going to have to live for God and do what he wants you to do here on this earth. Do it now. We call it obedience. I had a call from somebody in our church yesterday. Uh, I'm going to actually single him out. Jason, Jason Giesberg called me. And we went for breakfast a few months ago. And he phoned me just out of the blue. And he said, Pastor Allen, I just want to say thank you for that breakfast that we had. Because it changed my life. He said, you, you told me that what I need to do is I need to just obey God. I just need to obey God and do whatever God says. He says, this has revolutionized my life. I was so gratified by it, so thrilled by that. Because that is my job. My job is to communicate to you the importance of obeying Jesus. In fact, the Bible says to obey is better than sacrifice. In other words... Obedience to God is what he commands or what he expects of us. Jesus said, if you love me, you will obey my commands. That's what it means to be a follower of Christ. You do whatever God calls you to do. You say, but Pastor Allen, what about my circumstances? I don't have, my circumstances aren't very good these days. Jesus doesn't put any footnotes in the scripture that says obedience is conditional upon all conditions being good. You obey Jesus, you do what he tells you to do, regardless of your circumstances, regardless of what's going on in your life. Because that, 
Jesus tells us, is what produces life in us. So if you want to be fully alive, if you want to enjoy the life that is ours in Christ, then you've got to start doing what he says. Last, uh, last afternoon, yesterday afternoon, I, I called uh, uh, Mary Crager. Uh, she's been part of this church for many, many years, longer than me. She hasn't been able to come for a number of years because she's a shut-in, uh, and she's 99. Uh, she's actually the great-aunt of Carrie Hildebrand. And uh, Mary just, uh, just sends me these emails out of the blue. She says, you know what, I, I, woke, I wake up in the morning and God speaks to me and sometimes God tells me that I'm supposed to send you an email just to encourage you, Alan. I just want you to know I love you and I appreciate you. You mean so much to me. Now, often on Sunday morning at 7 o'clock in the morning, I'm getting e- these little emails from Mary. Now the thing you need to know about Mary is uh, this is what she said to me yesterday. Alan, I'm 99 years old, but the thing that I want to do more than anything is I want to be obedient to my God. I want to get it right. I want to continue to be useful for the Lord. Now you think to yourself, at 99, what really can you do? I'll tell you what, what she's doing. She's got a website. She's got a website, and on that website, she posts her, these devotionals, her, her thoughts, her writings on different passages of Scripture, like a commentary, really. And you know what? People from all over the world are, are, are sending her, her emails and, and sending messages back thanking her and asking questions and wanting to know more about her God and know more about what she believes and why does she believe and what does this mean? What does that mean? Now, this is even more remarkable when you consider that she's got macular degeneration. And every time I get an email from her, it's in 45 bold font. And so those of you who are familiar with computers, you know that that's pretty massive font. And so I always have to remember to send it back in that font. Um, it, it's, it's absolutely remarkable. She sends out these emails and gets them back, massive font. But she says, I've got work to do, and I need to keep busy until Jesus calls me home. Absolutely astonishing. Do you know she's had over uh, more than, tw- I think, 21,000 visits to her website last year at 99 and she said, I'll bet you I'm the oldest, oldest member of Cross Church. I said, guaranteed, guaranteed, Mary. And she said, I'm willing to keep going as long as God wants me to keep going. Absolutely thrilling. But what's, what's the key? What's the key for her? It's obedience to Jesus Christ, to do whatever it is that Jesus Christ has called her to do. And this is what makes Mary, at 99, fully alive. How alive are you today? Some of us, very young, we're just existing. Get on the hamster wheel, get on and just do our thing. Get up, eat our breakfast, whatever it is, or skip breakfast. You know, go to work, get the job done, go home, sit in front of the TV, Facebook, Facebook, TV, Facebook, eat some snacks, go to sleep, and do it again the next day. Mary would tell you, you're not living. Mary would tell you, you're just existing. What's the key to her long life and her good life? Obedience. A willingness to do whatever Jesus tells her to do. And so we hear the word of God. We believe the word of God. 
And the evidence that we believe the word of God is that we do the word of God. This is Christianity in a nutshell. This is what it means to be a follower of Christ. You know, my job as a pastor is to help you engage with scripture to shape your faith by preaching the word, by encouraging you to read the word, to know the word, to memorize the word. A few weeks ago, we handed out uh, 20 verses that everybody should know off by heart. You know, we, we don't do that. We don't publish these things just for the good of our health. We do it for your good so that you will grow and mature in your faith. You need to get hold of those scripture verses and commit them to heart so that you can start living them out. The second thing that I need to do as a pastor is help you to take that step of faith where you believe God and do what he says. And in believing God and doing what he says, that's where you have your eternal life and that's where you have your abundant life. You say, Pastor Ellen, what do you mean abundant life? Well, the Bible's clear that the way that you and I become Christians is by putting our faith in Jesus Christ, by embracing Jesus and saying, Jesus, I want you to be my Savior. I want you to be my Lord. I want to do whatever you want me to do. By the way, a lot of people don't know this. To be a follower of Jesus Christ doesn't mean that you just put your faith in him. That is that he died on the cross for your sins and that, and, and that because he died on the cross for your sins, that that's all you have to do. No, Jesus actually calls you to imitate him, to do what he does, to follow in his steps. This is what the Apostle Paul says to the Corinthians. Imitate me. If you don't know what to do, imitate me just as I imitate Jesus. And then the third thing that I have to do as a pastor is to help you put your faith into action, to give you opportunities to live out this faith. This is why we came up with the seven habits. It's not because we want to make your life difficult. It's not because we believe it's a magic formula. It's simple guidelines to help you Live as Jesus lived. So what we do know is that Jesus had a daily walk with God. Jesus met with the Father all the time. We read that in, uh, in Mark chapter 1, I think verse 22, verse 23. It says, very early in the morning, before, before the sun was up, Jesus went to a quiet place to pray, to meet with the Father. That's what Jesus did. And so therefore, we imitate him. We do what he does. And that's where there's life. If you are not walking with God on a daily basis, I can guarantee you that you do not have spiritual vitality or life. And then we say you need to go to church every Sunday. Why? Because Jesus did. In fact, the Bible says that Jesus was actually in the habit of going to church every Sunday. Well, it doesn't actually say he went to church. It says he went to the synagogue. But what we're talking about is the gathering of God's people. He did it weekly. In fact, it says he's in the habit of doing that. And then we tell you, you need to have this moment-by-moment holiness where you're constantly asking, what would Jesus do? What would Jesus do? Would Jesus forgive? Yes, Jesus would forgive. How many times would Jesus forgive? 70 times, seven times. In other words, always. He'll never not forgive. That's what it means to have moment-by-moment holiness. What are we doing? We're teaching you how to live out this faith. We've distilled the actions, the doing of the scripture in these seven habits. We ask you to get into a small group because we know that you become like the people you hang out with. We ask you to use your gifts to sign up to serve because we can't do the work that we do around here unless people sign up and show up to serve. Thank God for the 20 or some people that showed up yesterday to put up these beautiful decorations in preparation for our banquet that's coming up. We ask you to to make disciples, invite people to church. 
When's the last time you invited somebody to church? When's the last time you went on a missions trip? We, we, are, we try to do everything in our power to provide opportunities for you to actually live out your faith. Again, because faith without works is dead. We try to give you opportunity to give. This is why we have offering time. Some churches have cut that out altogether, but I say it's part of our worship experience. Yeah, we have a box in the back of the giving center, but we want to acknowledge and honor this time of giving because this is what God calls us to do as Christians. Now, if you're not a believer, if you're not a Christian, then you might not understand what this is about, but don't panic. Just sit there, let the offering plate go by. Don't worry about it. But for those of us who are followers of Christ, we understand that God has given us the privilege and the opportunity to partner with him in advancing his kingdom. What do we mean by advancing his kingdom? We're talking about bringing hope and life and light to people who live in darkness, who are sad and broken. This is why we give you missions opportunities. This is why we spend so many hours giving you opportunities to, to sign up to serve. I'm going to say this. Uh, faith is a tricky, it's a tricky thing. It's hard to quantify. It's hard to describe. But the best way to describe it is, um, is like this. Believe God and do what he says. Would you say that with me? Believe God and do what he says. So clearly... Believing is not enough. We have to believe and do. Like I said to you already, the devil believes in God, but he certainly doesn't do what God says that he should do, does he? He does what he wants to do. And folks, by the way, that is the very definition of what it means to be an unbeliever, is that you may believe in God, but you refuse to do what God says. That's what an unbeliever is. A believer is somebody who believes and does what God says. Once you become a Christian, I want you to know that uh, you have to change the way that you live. You've got to change the way that you think. Now, when I was growing up, uh, Billy Graham was big. There was all kinds of Billy Graham crusades. In fact, crusades was a big thing. In case you don't know what that is, it'd be a a gathering of people. Uh, Some would be Christians, some would not be Christians. But the preacher would preach a message that would tell people how to become Christians And then anybody who wanted to become a Christian, all they had to do is say, I believe in Jesus, and then you're a Christian, and you can go home. And what you'd have to do is you'd have to walk forward, and somebody would pray with you and give you a Bible, and that would be the end of it. And so what's happened, here's the thing that's happened, is that people got this wrong idea of what it means to be a Christian. They think all I have to do is say a, a, a sinner's prayer, and that's it. But here's what you need to understand. If you are going to be a follower of Jesus Christ, if you are going to be a Christian, it's got to be more than just putting your faith in Jesus. You have to start living like Jesus. You've got to start doing what Jesus did. Last week, I told you about John Wesley. Uh, He was the, the great preacher in the 1700s who actually saved England from that bloody revolution that France experienced. Because of John Wesley, the historians say that there was uh, four-fifths of the the population lived in dire poverty, and one-fifth lived in extreme wealth. John Wesley, through his preaching and his teaching and leading people to Christ and teaching people how to follow Jesus, how to put into action their faith, actually developed what what we now call that middle class, where you moved 
out of poverty, you're upwardly mobile, moving out of poverty into uh, a relative comfort and ease. Now, here's, here's a lot of people don't know. Um, John Wesley, once a person became a Christian, once they put their faith in Jesus, he, he taught them three simple rules. Number one, do no harm. So the big problem in Wesley's day, this is going to sound maybe funny to you, but in Wesley's day, uh, people were big drinkers and they're big fighters. Brawling, fighting, like, I mean, fist to fist. I mean, this is, this is the way the world was in John Wesley's day in the mid-1700s. So he comes along and says, you're going to live a new way now, people. You're going to do no harm. The second thing you're going to do is you're going to do as much good as you can. In other words, you're not going to just not do bad things. You're going to do now good things, as much good as you can. And then thirdly, you're going to use all the means of grace that God has provided to you. The effect of these three simple rules, and I'm not saying that I want everybody to go home now and, and, and focus on these three rules, although you can, because it'll, it'll do you good. But the reason I want to show this to you is because I want you to recognize the transformation that is happening in England. People now are taking seriously this notion of being a Christian. It's more than just a faith system. It's a way of living. It's it's a new way of functioning from day to day. So now you are going to set out to do no harm. So if someone is mean to you, you are not going to be mean in return. If somebody says something nasty to you, you're not going to say something nasty in return because you're supposed to do no harm. And it goes on. If you see somebody in need, don't just walk by them. If you, have the, if you have it in your power to make a difference or to help them, then you need to reach out to them. Well, folks, it revolutionized the country. Over a million people become believers. Look at that. A fifth of the country becomes followers of Jesus Christ. It changes the country. Bring, it brings peace. And interestingly, it brings prosperity. What we discovered as we look at the effects of John Wesley's teaching is that people began to abandon their sinful habits. In fact, what would happen, and you know, for those of you who think that small groups or cell groups is a new thing, it's an old thing. It's been happening for centuries. John Wesley had all the believers gathered together in cell groups. And what he would have them to do is he'd get them together, and they would confess their sins to one another, and then pray for each other so that they would have the self-control, which is in fact the fruit of the Spirit. They'd pray for each other and hold each other accountable. This revolutionized the country. Absolutely revolutionized the country. Folks, we, this is really why we do small groups here. It's so that we can hold each other accountable, so we can pray for one another. Do no harm. Do as much good as you can. Use all the means of grace that God has provided. What do we mean by the means of grace that God has provided? Well, I'm going to tell you, the grace of God is seen, first of all, uh, in the church. When you come to church, when you come here, you receive God's grace. A lot of you don't know that. Some people think, I don't have to go to church if I'm a, if I'm a Christian. I can just stay home. And I'm going to tell you everything in Scripture says that's wrong. You need to go to church because you need to receive God's grace. When you meet together with believers in a small group setting, what are you doing? You're receiving God's grace. When you open your Bible and begin to read it, what are you doing? You're receiving God's grace. When you come and you begin to worship God, you're receiving God's grace. What's God's grace? Very simply, it's a supernatural help. 
Now, I don't know about you, but I need as much supernatural help as I can get. Is anybody with me on this? A few of you? How many, try that one more time. How many are in need of God's grace? Yeah, that's good. I'm a few. <laughs> I thought I spoke speaking mostly to Christians. I'm glad to know I am here. We need God's grace. So how do we get it? I'm telling you folks, by doing exactly what God tells us to do, by coming to that place where we receive what God wants. Now, I haven't got time to go into all of the effects of these three rules. And by the way, that's why it was called Methodism. There's a method to the Christian life. Do no harm. Do as much good as you can. Use all the means of grace that God has provide you, provided you. But I want to share one thing, which is, I thought was really amazing. And it's something a lot of people are now not aware of. But John Wesley talked about having a new view of money. Did you get that? No, we don't like to talk about money in church because it's, a, you know, it's so often it's very negative connotations. Uh, I think because of the abuses that have taken place in church, uh, some people are just quite turned off. If a pastor even mentions the word money, they're out the door. They want no part of that. But listen to this. He preached a, a, what, what we call now one of his most famous messages on money. And here are his, his three points. He says, gain all you can save all you can, and then give all you can. Now, just so that you know that this guy practices what he preaches, over the course of his life, he gave over 30,000 pounds to those who were in need. In 2018, in Canadian dollars, we're talking about almost $10 million. All the money that people gave him for his speaking, and I tell you, he, spoke, he preached over 40,000 times, and if you're getting mathematicians here, do the arithmetic. You'll be amazed how that works out. 40,000 sermons, preaching at least two to three times every day. And he received a lot of money for the work that he did. But what does he do with it? He, he took what he needed for his own needs, and then he gave the rest away. Absolutely amazing. The first Methodists were to make as much money as they could possibly make. And after they made as much money as they could, then they used as much as they could to further the work of God. Now, by the way, in case you haven't figured it out yet, that's the way we function here across church. We, we ask you, go, go, make, go make money, go as, make, make as much as you can, but then when you've done that, give as much as you can. And here's what John Wesley says uh, about money. And, and this may, again, it may surprise you. He says this, he says, in the hands of God's children, that's, us, those who, are, those who are believers. He says, money is, is food for the hungry. Money is drink for the thirsty. It's clothes for the naked. It gives to the traveler and to the stranger a place to lay his head. With money, we can care for the widow and the fatherless. We can defend the oppressed and care for the sick and bring comfort to those in pain. With money, we can provide eyes to the blind and feet to the lame. Yes, we can lift people up from the gates of death. That's the power of money. I'm going to tell you something. The love of money is the root of all kinds of evil, the Bible says. But those of us who are under the influence of the Holy Spirit, and now I want to really stress this. Those of us who are believers, who are Christians today, what you may or may not understand is that you have been given the Holy Spirit of God who dwells in you, who enables you, who quickens you, who directs you, who, who shows you what to do, what not to do, where to give, where to help. Glory and I, we've tried to live our whole lives like this. Even when we had almost nothing, 
we still tried to be very, very generous and tried to give as much as we could. Even when we couldn't afford it, we would give anyway. And I'm going to tell you, God has provided for us and met our every need. But we believe strongly in the calling that is on every Christian to be good stewards of what God has entrusted to us. Gain all you can, save all you can, and then give all you can. You know, in uh, just a few weeks, we're having our big missions banquet. And uh, we believe in the power of the gospel to transform nations. We believe that. Historians looking at the efforts and the work of the Methodists, they believe that God used the Methodist movement, that is the movement created by John Wesley. God used the Methodism to show all the oppressed people of the world that feeding their souls on the word of God and obeying God is the path to providing the daily bread for their bodies. Did you get that? In other words, the reason, the reason we send out missionaries is so that people can actually learn to read the scriptures, know the scriptures, put their faith in the God of the scriptures, and then start doing what the scriptures say. Historians are saying this is what has brought a revolution to the whole world. It's transformed the world. Now, look at this. I was a missionary in Greece, and the best hospital in Greece, if you can believe this, was established by the Presbyterians. Church groups for centuries now have been planting... Uh, not just churches, but have been planting hospitals and schools, have changed cultures and societies. There's nations where widows, once the husband died, the widow would be burned with her husband on a, on a, on a funeral pyre. It was Christianity that came along and changed that way of thinking. That's the power of Christianity. But folks, in order for people to be transformed by this gospel message, we've got to learn what it means to know the word of God, to believe the word of God, and then to do what the word of God says. That, my friends, is what we're doing in Burundi. This is why Dennis, Dennis felt so compelled to go to Burundi. He wanted to make a difference in that country. He didn't want to just have a, an orphanage. He wanted to have an orphanage where kids were taught to know who Jesus Christ is so that they could put their faith in Christ and so that their lives could be changed. I can hardly wait for you to hear the stories of Deb and David and, uh, and Pam and, and Chris, and who am I missing? And Dennis and Inquan, these six that were just there. Absolutely thrilling to hear what happens when people hear the word of God. And what, is, what does the word of God tell us to do? The word of God tells us to go into all the world and preach the gospel. What happens when by faith they take those steps and they actually go? And what happens when they start doing what God tells them to do. Folks, once a year, once a year, we, we have a missions weekend where we ask everybody to make a donation of $70. Do you know that if everybody comes to this missions banquet in a couple of weeks, if we fill every chair, we'll be able to bring in $23,000, which is about half of what we need to bring in in order to do the work we do in Burundi. Last night at 2 o'clock in the morning, I got a text from Delson. And I was just saying to Dennis, we've got to get Delson a, a, a watch <laughs> so he understands that. 2 o'clock in the morning, the pastor needs to be sleeping because he gets up in a few hours. Anyway, he gets, sends me these texts. He says, Pastor Allen, you asked me to give you, uh, give you some numbers. What does it cost to plant a church in Burundi? 
And he figured that we could start a plant, begin the plant for about $1,000 to $1,500. Absolutely astonishing. There's no way on earth we could plant a church here in Winnipeg for $1,500. We couldn't begin. But for $1,500, we can do it in, in Burundi. And Dalson tells us there's a potential for four brand new plants. You do the arithmetic on that. It's not a lot of money. But folks, it takes us who have read the word of God, who believe the word of God, and who are willing to do what the word of God says. It takes us to step up and do what God calls us to do. Would you stand with me, please? Father, we thank you for the privilege it's ours to to do what your word tells us to do. God, you've given us your Holy Spirit who leads us and guides us, and we want to be a people who respond in obedience to the prompting of the Spirit because your word tells us that only people who do the will of the Father will be able to enter the kingdom of God. Father, we, uh, we, we want to be a people who are on fire for you. We want to be a people who are fully alive, who are experiencing the fulfilled, abundant life. Not just eternal life, but abundant life right here and right now. God, thank you. Thank you this morning for your grace. Thank you, God, for teaching us this morning. And Father, for some of us who've been sitting on the fence doing nothing, we're hearing your voice calling us, Lord, to respond to you and to do what you've called us to do. So Father, we pray that every single one of those seats would be, would be filled and that our people here at our church would understand that we're asking for a donation, that they're not buying a ticket to, to eat a meal. They're rather giving a donation and they're coming to experience a missions weekend that will be full of faith and full of joy. Father, move on our hearts, we pray, that your will would be done on earth as it is in heaven. And we pray that in Jesus' name. And everyone said it with me? Amen. Tell the person beside you, go do the will of God.